from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, Siobhan Haviland, Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce. I went to see Julia Gillard, the ex-Australian Prime Minister, talk about gender and leadership at the RSA the other day. Of course, as you imagine, she's incredibly eloquent. And inventor and author Rob Holmes. I think there's so much pressure on young people to be something, to make their mind up about what they want to do in life. And I'm a great fan of just taking the pressure off. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another edition of the In Conversation With podcast, where we speak to interesting characters from around the country and around the region. I am absolutely honoured and privileged to be joined today by the Director General of British Chambers of Commerce, Siobhan Haviland. Hello, Siobhan. Good afternoon, Stuart. So Siobhan has very kindly come all the way down to Devon from the big, shiny capital to speak on our podcast. So thank you for making the effort. It's truly appreciated. So I want to start with quite a sort of thorny, topical question that's hard-hitting journalism, as I like to. So I understand you used to work for a famous mouse. Oh, yes. (laughs) And actually, some people say... Oh, come on, what was your job? You did dress up as Minnie, didn't you? So explain. I used to work for the Walt Disney Company. And what most people don't know is that Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse, when you meet them in the theme park, obviously they're Mm -hmm. real. But Mickey is invariably a woman inside the costume because... The key criteria for becoming character is your height. Uh-huh. And Mickey's quite short. You also have to be an equity card-carrying member. So very professional role because Mickey's very short. It is almost a woman in there. And so were you actually Mickey? <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Oh, you have me. You have me. No, <laughs> no, no. So I joined the Walt Disney Company late 90s. I'd been working I worked for a consultancy in London and then I'd spent a few years in New York and I decided to come back to the UK and go to the other side, you know, see all that advice we were giving to companies, you know, how they were putting them in place. So sliding doors moment. I got offered a job by what was then Guinness, right. now Diageo, of course, yeah. and Walt Disney Company. And everyone said, oh, free beer or free holidays. What are you going to do? Well, I don't like beer, so I decided to go for the free, free holidays. holidays. And did you have many? Joined the Walt Disney Company. Well, the job in London, my boss worked in Florida in Orlando in the park. So I got to go over every three months and spend quite a lot of time there. So that was fantastic. So you weren't the equity card carrying Mickey or Minnie Mouse, but I hear you're famous at the moment. You are actually all over our screens all the time. One of the many brilliant parts of being the Director General of the British Chambers of Commerce is getting out on the telly, on the news, and telling the nation what our members think and feel and what they need to grow their businesses. And about a month ago, I did a piece for the BBC, as my media team said, doesn't get better than the six and the nine. Siobhan and then recently someone sent me a text saying oh you're in an advert I was like I don't think I'm in an advert so it turned out that they cut a bit of my interview of me saying it's a perfect storm and I'm now in an ident a BBC News ident so I'm being run six or seven saying times it's a, a day storm. I will try and get hold of that <laughs> and edit it appropriately just before we get on to your job Director General of British Chambers of Commerce. Where do you come from? Who are you? Where did it all start? Good question. So when I took this job, I think everyone thought, oh, oh, they've picked some lady from London and that's not going to play well with the, you know, amazing network we have across the country. Well, you wouldn't be able to tell from my accent, but my parents are both Geordies born and bred. So Jarrow and Heben, but left home just after they got married. 
I was actually technically born in Surrey because they happened to be there for three months on a project. And then I grew up most of the time in the Wirral. Oh, did you? Yeah. My dad worked for Unilever. Well, you've been everywhere. Port Sunlight, we were. So I grew up there till about 10. And then he took a job at the headquarters down in Kingston. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of my time growing up in Surrey, hence the home county's accent. I lived in Surrey for a while. In <laughs> fact, I went to Yateley Manor School for Boys in Surrey. But I came down to Plymouth when I was about seven or eight and I've never managed to get the full Janner accent. Although if I speak to people who are not from Devon. They say I sound like I'm from Devon, but I've got the best of, or the worst of both worlds, depending on which way you look at it. People from outside say, oh yeah, you've definitely got a bit of Devon in you. Devon. You've definitely got a little lilt. And what about my voice? <laughs> That's got one as well. So. I don't know what reminded me of this, and I probably shouldn't say it, and they'll probably cut it out, but there's some fantastic place names in the Southwest. Oh. And my favourite one is in Cornwall. There's a beach called Lusty Glaze. And I think that's why I develop after a few beers, a bit of a lusty <laughs> Sorry, anyway, I'm Devon, not Cornwall, so I should probably say nice things about Devon, not be nasty about Cornwall. Although I do tell Kim Conchie, the chief executive of Cornwall Chamber of Commerce, that he must be really proud to be the chief executive of the second best county chamber in the world. Bay um, loves that. He does. Loves- we do take the mick out of each other mercilessly, but it's all good humour because we're not in competition. We're all in it for the greater good, Indeed. especially of the region, which we're trying to bring together. And you know, we've spoken before where British Chambers of Commerce in the South Southwest, the county chambers of Cornwall, Devon, Dorset, Somerset and Business West are trying desperately to get behind the Great Southwest Initiative and be recognised as a powerhouse, particularly around the sort of blue-green economy. Mm. And I mean, you know, please tell my members that I do campaign probably mercilessly on their behalf to try and get this recognition, especially when we have our meetings. Did you know this week it's my year anniversary joining? Thanks very much. My commiseration. I mean, congratulations. I am celebrating by coming to Plymouth. It has massively improved my UK geography (laughs) as I've got around the country, which has been fantastic. And I'm hoping to make it to maybe not all 53, but a good Mm. spread. So in the last two weeks, I have been to the chambers of Dundee, Inverness, Fife, Aberdeen, Essex, Devon. Most important one. And next week I'm off to Grimsby. Oh, yeah. yeah I get about. If you get frequent flyer miles or something, that'd be great, wouldn't it? But you're it's all on train, I suspect, isn't it? Mostly. Yeah, mostly. And mostly. Yeah. But that, you know, it's a great way to travel, isn't it? What I have seen, so I guess my reflections of the year is the chambers in their places, and you're a great example of it, just incredibly rooted in their local places and central to all the parts of the system. So not just businesses, of course, having mm. thousands and thousands of members as businesses reaching a load more on top of that, but also your local authorities, your let your charities, your fire and emergency services, I mean, incredibly rooted in their local areas, Mm. know everybody inside out. And that is amazing because when we at the British Chambers, as that collective voice of the Chambers into government, into media to try and build the best conditions for business, it's gold dust. I mean, Mm. it's literally, I can, you know, walk in to see the Chancellor or the Business Secretary and tell him what the businesses of the UK have been telling me on a weekly basis. Mm. And the British Chambers have, that's the other thing I saw early on, the British Chamber brand means doors open across Whitehall and Westminster. Mm. And I think also our slightly best kept secret is the fact that we have 77 as of last week and counting international chambers all yeah. over the world. Yeah, so we're rooted locally, national influence, but international reach, I think is what we say, isn't it? The, You've the, been reading the narrative. Have I? Do I get a tick? <laughs> yes, you do. So I did actually, um, I think it was maybe not the first day, but within the first week when Siobhan got the job, I did say to you, you know, I'm, are you still glad you got it? Because <laughs> there's 53 independent chambers of commerce with very independent CEOs who, like me, not shy to say what we think. But I think, are you still glad you took the job? I 
absolutely love it. You don't have to say that. Nobody's listening. It's right. If you, if you hate it, you can say. It's a fabulous combination of the engagement with HMG, Her Majesty's Government, you know, going out to the media and, of course, our amazing chambers across the country and the world. But alongside it, the intellectual challenge of the policies and the things we need to put in place to make the UK the best place to start and grow a business. Mm. Fantastic combination. Yeah, I love doing it. You know, it's a privilege, isn't it, to represent all these fantastic businesses doing incredible things. Yeah. And, you know, I sometimes get a bit irritated when people talk of business almost with a sort of sneer as if they're all horrible capitalists trying to make millions of pounds out of the poor person, where actually they're the lifeblood of the country in terms of employment and productivity and innovation and health. And it's all there. And most of the businesses I work with, I'd say almost without exception, are about doing good for the community. Oh, I mean, for us, our purpose, of course, is to, you know, help our local economies grow and thrive, not just for the sake of it, because we know that local economic prosperity means jobs, means skills, and that means strong communities and societies. And that's what we're all about. And the best part of getting around the country is meeting our members local businesses, SMEs, the powerhouse for our economy, and hearing directly from them. And I am constantly blown away, despite the fact that everyone's dealing with increasing costs, the energy crisis, struggling getting, you know, people and labour. They are still forward-looking, pragmatic, innovative, positive. Mm. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's an absolute honour, isn't it? Mm. I just, I'm completely gobsmacked all the time by going to meet all these people and what they're doing and yeah I think it's an honour and for my members down here in the southwest who would say that sometimes we feel a bit overlooked and that we don't have the recognition in government what would you say to them having as you know worked a bit for government what I recognise then and now I'm living is government find it quite easy to talk to fewer bigger businesses Mm. and they really find it hard to reach out to SMEs which is why the Chamber and the British Chambers Network is so important Mm. and I know you say this to us a lot infrastructure Mm. I flew back from Aberdeen from the US UK trade talks last week took an hour and 20 minutes there are four flights a day from Heathrow and when I was checking how I could get down to see Kim in Cornwall in Falmouth the quickest way and I found a website that basically I put in Falmouth and it tells me always to get there Mm. the quickest way marginal for driving was to get the train and it was five hours and ten minutes Mm. and I thought now I know what Stuart's talking about yeah it's a challenge yeah we do feel a bit left out I mean the motorway ends a little way into our county and there's still another hundred miles to go you know it is difficult and if you don't have that connectivity how can you be productive and government seems to do this thing where they say well if you can prove that the one pound we invest in you will turn into two pounds we will invest in you. But the problem with that is they invest where there is already an ability to upscale and be productive. We need the very basics to get there. We need good road infrastructure, good rail infrastructure. We need connectivity. I've got the poor people in Northley saying to me at the moment, they just cannot get broadband. And so the mm. businesses are struggling. You know, the B&Bs will say, they send me examples where members of the public will email them saying, I want to come down. You've got a lovely village or town. I want to stay there. I'm in a little writing retreat. What's your broadband like? 
and they have to say, well, we don't really have good broadband, and that is just criminal. And the mm. rural and coastal communities down here really struggle. And yet, if government recognised what a fantastic hotbed of blue-green innovation we've got, you know, Plymouth Sound is a smart sound. I haven't had a chance to talk to Sean about this yet, but it's a fully 5G-enabled smart sound where they're testing marine autonomy, world leaders in wow. marine autonomy. We've got offshore wind farms. We've got geothermal in Cornwall. We've got lithium mines. You name it. We have blue-green wrapped up in the southwest. If only it would be recognised by government and if only that investment came, that would solve their levelling up problem. Never mind everything else. <laughs> I was about to use... The L word. The L-U expression. Yeah, and interestingly, if you look at the levelling up white paper, which I've no doubt you've read, cover to cover, Stuart, 365 pages, yeah. private enterprise is at the top of the list. Well, that's great, government. What are you going to do yeah, about that? Yeah. yeah, and the fact of the matter is, is you know, our job is to ensure that the conditions are right for business to come into these areas because, of course... Investment follows business, doesn't it? I mean, it should be the other way around is your point, but it isn't. So, And we've just got to continue to be that voice for those sort of things, like the blue-green economy. Yeah. Well, can you be, in the sense you're a national organisation, I am not, I'm a local organisation, but I'm a, is the right word, affiliated to BCC? I mean, you, you, I don't yes, report yeah, you. Yeah, you yeah, are yeah, my, yeah. My we're a network. Um, can you campaign for one error over another? I think every region has its strengths, doesn't it? And I think it's a question of ensuring that we are referencing all of those, you know, when we're talking about great places to do business and we're making sure that we're covering all those bases. I mean, I can't really (laughs) pick one place over another, right? But every place has its strengths and that's what we need to play on. So please play on the fact blue-green economy in the southwest. Absolutely. We are here. It's happening here. It's just we're not particularly good at getting the message out there. In fact, the former leader of Plymouth City Council said to me, Plymouth is a city that hides its light under a bushel and then it hides the bushel just to be sure. (laughs) It's absolutely true. We do. We're not particularly good at getting that message out. And that frustrates the Southwest when we feel a little bit overlooked. And Siobhan will tell you, I do bang on about this quite a lot, just occasionally, perhaps. Well, that's why it needs people like you. Yeah, well, being gobby, you mean? Yes. Loud voice. Yeah, yeah, loud voice. Still to come. Inventor and author Rob Holmes. In the days when you could go to Number 10 and have a party officially, I got invited to Number 10 and met the then Prime Minister's wife and got a tour of 10 Downing Street. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. So you are the first female Director General of British Chambers of Commerce. I am in 162 years of our history. That's an outrage. Not that they've got a woman in charge. I mean that it's taken 162 years. To... It's surprising, I would say, yes. No, I'm really pleased. And in fact, you've got a powerful female team. You've got Hannah and Claire, who are they recognised in the top 100 most influential women in Westminster? Or yes, something? yeah, they are a job share as well. So yeah. they are living and breathing, flexible working as a really important thing in terms of the workforce more generally. All my direct reports of women, we have a female chair of our board, the British Chambers. And of course, we have a female president in Baroness Ruby McGregor-Smith, who is a very positive voice for the Chamber Network and is not afraid in coming out (laughs) when she thinks the government is doing something wrong. So she's been a fantastic advocate for us. I mean this sincerely. Has it been an advantage, disadvantage? Do you still come up against misogyny? Do you feel that or is it irrelevant to you? You just head down and get on with it. What do you feel? So I've had to think about this lately because people have asked me that question and I've thought back on my career and how I've dealt 
dealt with things. I think that early on in my career, having spent a lot of time in agency world, in the world of marketing and comms and brand strategy, there were quite a lot of women in those organisations mm. and I never particularly came across an issue. I'm also fairly focused and single-minded, so maybe I just didn't see it when it was there. <laughs> just ignored it. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm a massive believer in the meritocracy. You know, mm. I'm the first person in my family to ever go to university. Right. My dad always said, it's the duty of the pupil to be greater than the teacher. Mm. And that's what we've always been about. So, yeah, I mean, moving forward, having said that, I think when I joined government, I really saw very clearly that I was often the only woman in the room. Mm. And actually, I'd never not had my voice heard, but I had to try quite a lot harder mm. in some of those environments, especially in number 10. However, what I've realised over the years, having believed when I started my career a while ago, that gender equality was only just around the corner. Well, it isn't. Mm. So It's still just around the corner, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's 130 years away, according to the World Economic Forum. Sorry, say that again. It's 130 years we've got to go on current current pace to get to gender equality in business. I think I've just got depressed. I went to see Julia Gillard, the ex-Australian Prime Minister, talk about gender and leadership at the RSA the other day of course as you imagine she's incredibly eloquent but her stats were indeed Stuart rather depressing so what I've come to realize is it's not enough to say you know it's fine we'll get there together actually it is time to sort of speak up and stand up for the move towards gender equality and also you know imperative the commercial argument for gender diversity is well trodden road right it's not new news so actually why are we still talking about isn't it great we've got 30% of women on boards Mm. They're 50% 50%? of the population. We've still got a long way to go. I sit on a board of a foundation called Women of the World. It's social justice, actually. Mm. I mean, it's gender-based, but it's about social justice. And that's about raising up women's voices from the grassroots. It's got to be about the best person for the job. Again, back to meritocracy. But actually, you can only be what you can see. So people can see that you can. So to influence and set an example and yeah, yeah. show that it is available and open doors, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. I use my network, mentor people. You know, when people ask, you know, what sort of advice I give about your career, two of the ones I say is, firstly, when you're moving up through your career, nurture your networks. So I say to people, think about your networks and think about how you build them and then how you look after them. One piece of advice is always to say, if you meet somebody who you think's interesting or you'd like to talk to, just to ask, just say, you know, can we have a coffee for half an hour? I'd love to talk to you more about your career or what you're doing or your advice. And people say yes. They do, which is my second part of that story, which is when you get to our stage all the way through, give generously of your time. Say yes to people when they say, can I have a coffee? Because you never know as well. You know, we're always still looking after our networks at whatever age. I find them more inspirational anyway and younger and full of energy and ideas. And, you know, it's like, yeah, of course you should. Yeah, absolutely. And what did you do in government? I joined government in 2016, two months before the referendum. Oh. I had, (laughs) yeah. I didn't, didn't go entirely to plan. I had previously got involved in early social impact investing. So investing in social enterprises, business as a force for good, which of course is what we stand mm. for. And back to my network point, I got invited to an event, number 11, for impact investors. I was a mm. tiny angel investor. Honestly, I slightly had to check on a map where Downing Street was, which is not good for a PPEist. Um. But anyway, I met a woman there. She ran a thing called the Business Partnerships Team in the Cabinet Office. I linked in with her. And a year later, it popped up and it said, oh, so says moving on. She said, would you like to come and have a cup of tea and talk about my role? Mm. So off I trotted to Her Majesty's Treasury Building. I thought, oh, 
This is nice. Anyway, the role was bringing big business and government together for social change. I thought, wow, well, that's big business as a force for good. Yeah. I mean, we can really make some change, you know. How bad can it be? Anyway, honestly, didn't think I'd get the job, but I did. So great time to join, they said. David Cameron's, you know, 18 months into his election, three years of clear water. I mean, I didn't really know what that meant, but it sounded good. So, yeah, two months before the run. What happened? So I did five years in government, three prime ministers, two general elections, an EU referendum, an actual leaving of the EU after quite a long time, and a year of the global pandemic. So apart from that, it was great. <laughs> but what I did manage to build through that time, despite all that slight chaos, was a programme called the Inclusive Economy Partnership, which was bringing government business and civil society together around small social enterprises that we could grow quickly through partnerships. Mm. So not through financing, but through working with bigger organisations who could help them through procurement or supply chains or skills, you know, you Mm. name it. And actually, we ran three accelerators with just under 60 social enterprises and we developed hundreds of partnerships and we opened doors for them that they would never have been able to do themselves. So really, the power of government, I think, is convening power, huge convening power, and that sort of catalyst, that seed funding Mm. to make those sort of partnerships happen. So despite all the rest of it, and two years in number 10 through Brexit times, I guess that's my proudest thing that I've developed. That's brilliant. Going to be fascinating to see what happens over the next few years. I mean, so I said to your predecessor, Dr. Adam Marshall, just as he was leaving, he said, you know, I joined here when the recession hit and I'm leaving as the pandemic's hit. And I said, well, congratulations, Adam, you've taken us from one disaster to another. (laughs) (laughs) He was very good. He was brilliant. So it must be exciting for you to see what's coming. Yeah, well, interesting what has happened already year one in. I joined in May last year. It looked like COVID was pretty much over. Of course, it wasn't. And I distinctly remember I meet you and your co-CEOs every Wednesday morning on the internet, Mm. don't we? And somebody said about a month in, you know, we're hearing these stories from our businesses that they're really struggling getting hold of raw materials. Mm. Material prices are going up. It's weird, steel, cardboard, wood. I said, well, I'm off to see the governor of the Bank of England. So, you know, I'll flag it to him. mention it. Yeah. (laughs) Andrew, I said, look, seeing these price increases, it seems unusual. He said, don't worry. He said, it's just some post-COVID supply chain issues. Issues. It'll all settle. It'll all settle down by September. Anyway, What's he saying now. <laughs> that was a story I relayed back to my chamber CEOs. He went, "No, sorry, for go back to Andrew Bailey." Anyway, what I said to him was, "We are the canary in the mine. You are hearing it here first, yeah. and you need to listen." Yeah. And sadly, it's been right. So, inflation. You know, we run a quarterly economic survey. It is used by the Chancellor, by the Bank of England. It is the voice of British business, and we have now seen three quarters in a row that inflation is the number one issue that businesses are facing. And this is the first time that inflation has ever been top of the list since it started in 1989. So that just, you know, and what have we seen happen through the year? Shipping costs, more issues in getting labour, and of course, energy Energy bills started going up in December, didn't they? And everyone was like, oh, it's sort of a slow increase, but it'll settle down. And of course, now, just soaring just absolutely through the roof so we will be pushing the chancellor hard i can't reveal right now but we'll be pushing the chancellor hard on what he's going to do to help because 
businesses can't just keep facing these costs. And with energy costs, there's nothing you can even do to mitigate. I mean, there's only so many times you can innovate and pivot, right? Mm. Energy prices going up 100, 200% taken off your contract onto a variable Mm. price. You can't plan for it. You can't find ways around it. So yeah, it's been a year that we didn't expect. It must be very, very difficult. Well, I always remind our members that we are apolitical because firstly, we have to work with whoever's in power. And secondly, because we represent businesses who have different views. I am and so far have kept to that. I struggle with it a little bit sometimes. Do you find that difficult when you see things that are either going very right or probably more likely very wrong? (laughs) Do you struggle with the apolitical side of the role? Honestly, no. I don't know why that is. I was a civil servant for five years. We are obviously were very kind of used to treading that line. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's about what you're here to do, isn't it? And it's about the best conditions for businesses. I guess I probably get frustrated sometimes that the bandwidth of government is being taken up with things that we think are less important than ensuring our economy is thriving. (laughs) I think maybe that frustration. And if you were going to build a government, I mean, having a secretary of state that comes into a department once every, mm, at best, what, two years... It's like bringing a new CEO into your business once every two years into a business they know nothing about. No, well, that's the problem. Cycling in and out. The the, the cycle's wrong. The timing's wrong. It leads to short-termism. It doesn't lead to long-term strategic thinking. And chambers will react and try and help. But we see these initiatives come out of government. Right, we're going to help business with this program or this system. Well, firstly, nobody asked us. And secondly, it's reactive and short-term. And then someone else comes in and changes it. We do need to have systemic change where we have long-term strategic planning towards what really is going to help business and help grow the economy. Yeah, which I think is where the industrial strategy was trying to go, wasn't it? Yeah. Until it was, indeed, to your point exactly, someone else came to power. (laughs) I thought that was a bad idea. (laughs) That's absolutely right. I think, obviously, before my time, but you touched on it, COVID, as terrible as it was, it saw the network at its best because Mm. it was able to do exactly as you described, funnel up from businesses to Westminster what was happening on the ground, what the issues were, and then feeding that guidance back down again. So we've continued to see it this year. We've got the furlough scheme extended from yeah. in May to September. I mean, we pushed so hard with the Chancellor in December to bring out more grants for hospitality when they were the Omicron variant hit. Mm. And we've seen government act. We've seen them intervene when we have together been that loud voice. And that's what we're saying to the Chancellor now. You've done it before. You've massively supported businesses, but don't stop now. And to be fair, I mean, firstly, that is, I can say, British Chambers of Commerce came into their own during that time, not just us as individual chambers, but BCC itself being that funnel. And we had a member who was inadvertently affected by a government policy that was supposed to help. It was a technical thing where should have gone one way, but actually it didn't help them. And they sent that example to us. We sent it to you. It landed on Rishi Sunak's desk. Next day, Rishi Sunak had a call with them. Yeah. Policy changed. Bang. Because that was not what was intended. Mm. So that is the power of the network. Government is able to set policies that effectively work for the 80%, maybe. Mm. And it's very hard for them to see the edge cases. And so that is what you have just described, these examples where it's just not working. So furlough, for example, excellent policy. But actually, what you mean? I have to furlough people, but I can't bring them back for three months. That can't work for me. I've got a shift system or I need that. So then flexible furlough was effectively a chamber push. And that was another great example of getting the right policy 
is in place. I'm really sorry because I'm looking at the time and thinking, oh my God, I could honestly talk to you for hours, but we're going to have to wrap up. But just before we do, tell our listeners why people should join the best chamber in the country, which is obviously definitely <laughs> not that you can agree, but why should they join a chamber? Why should people who might listen to this who aren't actually a member join a chamber of commerce? It's so interesting because whenever I visit a chamber, I ask members why they have joined their local chamber. And one of the strengths of the chamber is, is I get lots of different answers. And they normally start with, oh, it's great because I network and I can get new business opportunities. You know, I've grown my business by meeting new suppliers or new customers. And then they'll talk about the events they go to. And eventually they'll say, and you know what? I'm really part of this community. I'm in this place and I want to be part of the chamber because it's part of our community. Mm. And I see that when I come and meet the members. So I think all of those things, but I think ultimately being part of your chamber is being part of your community and that's how you get things changed and made better. And your chamber, of course, is part of the national network and we can do that on a national level too. Brilliant. What a great ad. We'll clip that and we'll use it <laughs> as an advert for the chamber. Siobhan Havilland, thank you so much, again, genuinely, for coming all the way from London. We're really grateful for your support. Please come anytime. You're really thank welcome. You. And thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. From Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Rob Holmes. Hello there. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Now, Rob is best known for grow bags, not the type you grow tomatoes in, but the type you put babies into, baby sleeping bags, which I believe started off because of your son. Is that right? Yes, my son Sam wouldn't sleep properly. And he was waking up in the night, kicking his covers off and waking up at 5am every morning until we were recommended these sleeping bags from Europe. And we put him in one of those. We popped him in and he slept 12 hours a night. So we were like, okay, I think we're onto something here. And we started buying more and more of them until we had that moment. I think it was me, actually, that just had that, I think we could do this ourselves. Yeah. And that's how it all started, yeah, back in 2000. And it's led to Grow Egg and Grow Clonk. What are they? We started off with the Grow Company doing these Grow Bags, and then we moved into other products, so out of textiles and into electronics. So the Grow Egg was, oh, it still is, it's a thermometer. It looks like a large dinosaur egg that changes colour. And based on the colour of the light is on, the lets you know what temperature the room is at for the baby so that you can just be monitoring the relationship between what the baby's wearing and the temperature of the room just to make sure the baby doesn't get too hot so that's the grow egg and the grow clock was an invention that I had when I was having a shower one day I was daydreaming and I was trying to think of a way of trying to keep one of my other children (laughs) to not wake up too early even though he wasn't in his grow bag anymore and I came up with the idea for a clock which basically uses a moon an image of a moon and stars that turn into the sun it's just a very simple visual reference for young children who can't read clocks to let them know and that product they've sold over two million grow clocks wow since i had that idea in the shower so that's a great one too all uh, the best things happen in the shower don't (laughs) that's that's a different story best ideas i should say and the grow clock i can remember my niece having difficulty they wake up in the night they don't know what time it is do they but this is a visual representation yeah i mean in the winter you can wake up you don't know the difference still dark whether Mm. it's six o'clock seven o'clock you don't really no, and in the summer it's the other way around you could wake up at five and go it's light but actually mum and dad still want to sleep till seven so i thought it's just a great way of how can you just simply use colors and images to show the passing of time and the other thing that we had is 
that we had stars that count down on the clock. So if you know you've got one star to go, it's worth just hanging in there because it's not long until the sun comes up on the right. clock and then you can go and wake mum and dad up. So yeah, it's just a very simple idea, which is, I think it's currently up to 8,000 five-star reviews on Amazon for that product. So it's wonderful That's to see fantastic. it out there doing its thing. Yeah, doing its thing and helping parents get a good night's sleep, which I bet was part of your motivation. Absolutely. And I, as you might come on to, I'm touring schools at the moment, teaching mindfulness. And I went to a school today. Every single class I've been to out of 36 schools so far in Devon, there's at least half the class put their hand up to having a grow clock at home, which wow. is incredible. So I'm really chuffed to see it out there doing its thing. Yeah. Well, you're right. We will come back to that. Yep. You have a story about how you met your manufacturer, do you not, <laughs> for your sleeping bags? Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, I believe in things like the law of attraction and that thoughts are actually things, but I'd never seen it manifest so quickly. So we're out in Holland. We used a manufacturer in Holland to initially make our grow bags. And we were on about our third visit out there and it just wasn't going well. We'd committed to them for the first few orders, but we didn't really trust the manufacturer. We didn't feel that they were telling us everything we wanted to know. So the guy that runs the factory dropped us off at a train station in the middle of, it's called Enschede, in the middle of Holland. And he just waved goodbye. And we sat there and realized that there were no trains. All the trains had stopped that day. So there are no trains, no taxis. There's like tumbleweed blowing through this little town. And we were just like, what are we going to do? So I sat there with my wife and we were having a conversation. We went, right, that didn't go so well. We need a Chinese baby sleeping bag manufacturer to help us to grow the company because we can start off with this chat, but we need to find mm -hmm. someone that can make better quality products, actually, not actually necessarily cheaper. So we said, yes, we wrote it in our notebook. We need a Chinese baby sleeping manufacturer. Well, about half an hour later, a taxi came past the station that was already hired. So its light was off. But I, like some madman, I felt this urge to jump out in the middle of the road, <laughs> wave down the cab and say, please, can you take us somewhere? Do you know any other companies that are driving around? Anyway, this chap said, well, uh, you're in luck because the lady in my cab's going your way. And if you don't mind sharing a cab for 10 minutes, that's fine. So mm. we got into this car and she was clearly a Chinese origin lady. And we sat in the back and we said, what do you do? And she says, well, I'm, gosh, I said, I'm having a bad day. I'm four hours late for my meetings. I've come all the way from China to meet my clients. And we said, what do you do? And she says, well, I work in textiles. And we went, that's interesting. What sort of textile? She says, well, baby products. We went, really? What kind of baby products? She says, well, I don't know if you've heard of them, but we specialize in baby sleeping bags. We said, what? And she opened up her bag and it was full of baby sleeping bags. And so was ours. So we exchanged business cards in those 10 minutes in that taxi. Yeah. And she was our main manufacturer for nine years. Wow. So, you know, it was like it didn't take long for the universe to arrange for us to meet this special lady. And even now I'm working with her now on a new project to do with my new business that I'm working on. So it's a link that I all have for life with this particular lady called Jean. So mm. it was pretty amazing, pretty unusual. Are you allowed to tell us about the new product? Is it really top secret? It's nothing top secret at all. I got into mindfulness and meditation about 10 years ago. And mm. I, a few years ago, I decided to start writing children's books. I wanted to have a teacher to teach mindfulness to children because I can't do every school and I can't be in everyone's mm. house. So I thought I'll delegate it to Master Al. So apart from the books, I've started working now on a range of products, which is kind of what I do. I mean, it's in my DNA to do this from my business experience. So I'm working on a factory in Sri Lanka to make me a Master Al toy that has a built-in recording to guide children to mindfulness and also play some relaxing music at bedtime. And with Jean, my lady from China, she's helping me make just a small range of children's school backpacks, pencil cases, and insulated food bags, all with Master Al designs mm. on it, and just all really to encourage children to practice breathing and to practice mindfulness. So that's what she's working on at the moment. 
which is exciting. And that mindfulness thing, is that important to you? How did that come about? Yeah, I just got really interested in meditation and mindfulness and the whole kind of spiritual world about 10 years ago. And I really fell in love with the simplicity of mindfulness and what it really is, because it's like meditation, but it's Mm. slightly different. And I've been on to retreats and I've, you know, been on courses and things. And it really struck a chord with me that my mind, which can be like everybody's very, very busy, is that to come back to the present moment, the now moment is actually a very peaceful place and no better than just connecting with your breath and just noticing your breathing. It's very, very peaceful. And we complicate the now moment by thinking about dozens of things, Mm. usually that aren't even happening right now, Mm. the past and the future. But coming back to the now moment is great. And with all that's been going on with COVID and the pandemic and children having to work from home, you know, there's been a big rise in mental health issues for children who get very anxious and worried about things. So I think mindfulness is the gift that keeps on giving and children and families need it even more. Yeah, that's what I do. So I've sold about 800 books so far of our local primary schools. I've taught mindfulness to nearly 7,000 children now. And I have these wonderful bits of feedback from parents, for example, where their children, a nine-year-old child will come home and teach their parents mindful breathing and help calm the whole house down. So Master Raoul and me are training the children to train the parents. It's perfect. I think I need you for my neighbour, but that's a different story. <laughs> well, funnily enough, you mentioned the pandemic, and definitely we've seen that that's affected you know, children and adults alike with their mental health problems. But I think even pre-pandemic, we've seen an almost exponential rise in mental health issues with young people. Why do you think that is? I think there's so much pressure on young people to be something, to make their mind up about what they want to do in life. And I'm a great fan of just taking the pressure off, even with my own children. I say, do the best you can at your exams. I have a 16 year old and he's just kind of figuring out what he thinks he might want to do Mm. and I'm like that's fine well why don't you just explore that for your sixth form but you can change your mind anytime so I think it's about taking the pressure off and I know lots of parents who are super stressed at what it means if they don't get the grades. And I think that that's our generation where somehow it was even more important to get the grades, to get the right degree, not just go to university, but which university in order to get the job. And I think everything's changing. And I've got some of my children have gone to uni, some haven't. And there's a famous quote from John Lennon when he was at school, the ex-Beatle. He was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Happy. He said happy. Yes. And I love that because there wasn't a box for them to tick on the careers form of the fair that he was at. I remember because didn't the teacher say you don't understand the question? And he says, no, you don't understand life. And I thought, that's brilliant. Absolutely. Exactly. So I just think take the pressure off. Let children be children. Let them have fun. Mm. Let them enjoy life and, and try and keep that joy for life going all the way through adulthood. Because at some point we quite often lose it especially in our teens, when it all becomes a bit of a trial. And I think life is not meant to be a trial. It's meant to be joyful and fun. Mm. And we just don't need to make it any heavier. No, we certainly don't. I'll let you know if I ever work out what it is I want to do. I think... I'm still working it out. Exactly. (laughs) It is way too young to have to choose a path, isn't it? I mean, I can remember my parents being mortified when I decided I didn't want to go to university. I wanted to leave school at the end of the fifth form, as we called it then, and after my O-levels, that I sort of scraped a few through just by somehow winging it but not doing a levels and going on to university that was shock horror you know how on earth could you do that but as it's turned out i've had a most incredible varied time 
you're right. You don't have to decide now, do you? And there's a million opportunities out there. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm the same. Look, like I'm about the same age as you, Stuart, and because I did, I, o, I did O levels. Birth, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll be about the same. Well, I did O levels, so we must be very similar. Because I think the year after me, they changed the GCSEs. But yeah, I mean, I did a geography degree at university. I went to Exeter. I had a marvelous time. I didn't do any work. I ended up with a two one. I managed to make a bit of an effort towards the end. My parents wondered what on earth I was doing there because they could tell how little work I was doing. And I have to say, like my older son went to Plymouth University and did computer studies because he really desperate to learn more about computers mm. and he landed an amazing job. So university was perfect for him because it was very vocational. He wanted to learn something particular. But my other children, I don't think they'll go to university because they just want to start working. They yeah. want to get some real experience of well, life, you know? Yeah, exactly that. <laughs> I remember sitting in school that's actually probably just a few hundred metres from here. I went to Devonport High and I can remember looking at the, I say bars on the window, but the sort of window frames and they felt like bars. And I can remember just desperately wanting to be out in the real world and experiencing things and finding stuff out. I didn't, it wasn't for me an academic career and it, and it isn't for everyone. Is yeah, it? I mean, you've got my CV there. You, I don't know if I put on there, but I was a governor of my local secondary school for three years and it was a great privilege to see the school from the inside out. Yeah. But I must admit, I got towards the end of the time when I thought, do you know what? I'm just not sure sure I fully agree with the way we teach our children in this production line that Mm. we do. You know, I think Einstein said, if you try and teach a fish to climb a ladder, you'll eventually label it thick. Yeah, that's right. And I think there is this aspect of that there is some genius in every child that they are amazing at. It's their thing. It's their zone. Just tapping into it. And it's finding it. And quite often they don't find it at school across any of the subjects. You know, Mm. it might be that their thing is volunteering or nursing or something that they just didn't have access to. So I know my youngest has not enjoyed school he's just like what's the point of learning all this stuff where's what he likes doing is he likes engineering so now he's going to go and do an engineering sixth form he's going to make things with his hands i know he's going to come back from a day at college and go was that really school am i allowed to do that oh do you know i recently had a tour of the sweet building the southwest institute of technology building down at oceans gate that's run by or in partnership with city college and it's all about marine engineering and they've got 3d printers and they design ships hull shapes and they work on those and I looked at it and I thought, why didn't they have that when I was at school? <laughs> so I think we are getting there. We're improving, aren't we? But you're right. It's more about happiness than qualification. It's more about purpose and enjoying life than it is about attaining stuff, isn't it? I just think we've all got something amazing that we can do. And it's finding that. And it, for me as a parent, the process of having children has been to offer them the opportunity to discover what that thing is. What is the thing that makes them come alive? Mm. What do their eyes light up in? So recently I took my son Eddie just down the road from where we are today, the Princess Yachts manufacturing. Mm. We went there for an open morning to have a look around. I saw his eyes light up when he looked into the back of a Princess Yacht and saw all the gubbins in there. You know, the engines and the bilge pumps and the electronics and the batteries. The lights came on in his eyes and I was like, right, that's it. This is the thing. Marine engineering seems to be what he wants to be doing. And I think it's just just as every parent, it's just give the children the opportunity to discover what it is that makes them feel alive. Yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. I think it was Heath Ledger who said, you know, if you bump into someone, they always ask you if you've got a job or if you're married or whatever, if you've got a house. Nobody says, are you happy? 
<laughs> that's probably the more important question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Know, rather than anything else. Because if you're happy, it doesn't feel like work, does it? Exactly right. And this also ties into why I love meditation and mindfulness so much, is that the kind of the spiritual life basically asks you to look at, not at the things around you, the material things, but just noticing how you're feeling inside and being really appreciative for what you already have. Mm. And that's something that comes through in my children's books, is gratitude. If you're mm. so grateful for what you already have and the life you already have, and you don't have to look very far on the news, to realize that we are blessed to be living in this country, yeah. in a country like the UK, to just actually realize that happiness and self is an inside job. It's never going to be sorted externally. It doesn't matter how many cars you've got or houses yeah. or princess yachts. You're always going to think it's the next one that's going to do it. Whereas actually happiness is an inside job. And that's something Definitely. that I've been practicing a lot in the last 10 years. Well, I'm just tiny, tiny bit older than you, about 18 <laughs> months. Okay. And it's taken me until quite recently to realize that, that the next thing you buy, it gives you a moment's gratification, but it's not long-term happiness. And don't get me wrong. I'd very much like a princess yacht. I wouldn't <laughs> like to have to run one, but I'd love one. They are beautiful things. I'm delighted they're made in Plymouth. But it's more about actually the experiences. And younger people want more experiences. They don't want to own things, do they? They've got their head around streaming services for music. They don't want to buy an album. They want to listen to it, and they don't mind paying a little bit to listen to it. They're happy to rent or lease a car. They don't aspire to own houses in the way that we did. So I think, you know, maybe we are progressing in the right direction. I think we are. And I try and give my children experiences as presents and, you know, to holidays or money to go to London for the weekend or whatever. Just go and experience life because we've got this incredible planet we live on. We've got a full pass to go to almost every country, maybe some not so much at the moment. But it's like get out there, go and see the world, go and enjoy yourself and see what you enjoy doing. And I think it's about resetting your compass, if you like, or your barometer is probably a better term about what you've got. Funnily enough, I've just come from a meeting of Plymouth Area Business Council and we had a presentation from Jabo Butera from Diversity Business Incubator, who's been a guest on my podcast. And we've just been having a discussion about is it right or not that the national insurance is going up um, to help pay for the NHS. And, you know, there was a sort of highbrow business discussion about is this a business tax? Is it going to be productive for business? Is it going to be this? And Jabo said, you know, I'm from Rwanda. And we look at the NHS and go, wow, they don't have that. He said, there's no amount of money that matters. To him, it wasn't about the money. It's not if you pay another penny on your income tax. It was, look what you've got. Well, they just don't have that. And of course, we just take it for granted. Good old NHS will be there, won't it? I can't remember who it was who said sort of travelling resets your barometer, but I think that's absolutely right. You see what other people have got. I mean, just a simple fact, like half the world don't have a flushing toilet. Mm. I mean, you're what? How many is that? Three and a half billion people don't have access? You know, there's yeah. little things that we just take for granted here in the West. You know, they're a big thing when you get overseas. So, And that's another thing I think I'd like to see a GCSE in volunteering. Yeah. I know there is the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which is really good. And, yeah, you know, it's a great legacy of the Duke. But actually, I think there should be a whole course on the best benefits of volunteering of going and helping other people because mm. that's a huge source of happiness as well as to do things for other people so i'm advocate for all that kind of stuff yeah it's funny isn't it i mean i've set the priorities for the chamber for this year 2022 as being people planet and purpose the first two sort of speak for themselves but the purpose bit is about businesses that have a positive social impact and it's more and more what younger people want to work for they don't want to work for a faceless manufacturer who gives them a carriage clock 40 years later what they want is something they feel like they're making a difference. So we're going to be focusing on that purpose-driven business about, you know, what? why are you doing what you're doing? What does it achieve? How does it do good? And the reason I say this is from what you just said, I was lucky enough to volunteer for St. Luke's Hospice for 10 years. And when my tenure was up, 
I suddenly realised that the day job I had working in professional services wasn't filling me with joy. It didn't give me purpose. It was what I'd been doing with St. Luke's. So it was very soon after that that I thought, I need a job where I'm doing some good and hopefully... Now I feel like I have. Yeah. No, that's great. And I'll give you an example of that, that in any business, there's always a way to do some good. So, for example, I do a bit of mentoring from time mm-hmm. to time. And this couple came to me and they'd got a company up and running selling baby pushchairs and, you know, not prams, but more or less a range of pushchairs. And it was going OK, but it wasn't really alive. They didn't really have much of a marketing story. And I said, you know what? How about you support a charity or do something good when people buy a pushchair? Mm-hmm. And I immediately had a quick look on Google and I found an organization that for a donation of about £50, they would give someone a limb so they could walk again who had a limb knocked off from, you know, a landmine or something. And they were like, oh, my God. I said, so, yeah, you could sell a pushchair and you walk your baby in your pushchair. And by doing that, you've helped someone else to walk again. And I said, why don't you come up with a, say, call it Join Our Movement Mm. because it's all about movement. And they were like, oh, that's fantastic. And they adopted that charity. And suddenly there's a story on their marketing, on their website. There's a feel-good factor. But they're also, as a parent, you know, I've just bought this 250-pound pushchair chair and I've helped someone to walk again so there's always a way to do good even through just selling a push chair yes I totally agree and there's always that argument well are they doing good just to look good is it virtue signaling but no if there's a practical positive outcome well good for them they don't have to do it nobody's forcing them to of course it's a win-win isn't it they are doing it to look good but also it is doing good so it's everybody wins and speaking of which you've raised a large amount of money for the lullaby trust haven't you can you tell me what that's all about yeah sure so the lullaby Trust was rebranded to the Lullaby Trust, but when we were working with them, they were called the Foundation for the Study of Infant Deaths. So that's basically our cot death charity, yeah. is a sort of quick way of saying it. Mm. And before we started selling these grow bags, we went to the cot death charity and we said, first of all, are these safe? Because we don't want to sell them if they're not. And they said, actually, do you know what? We think they're really good. We think they're probably safer, in fact, than blankets and sheets, because as long as they're worn correctly, you can't be covered up. Yeah, you you can't, can't have a blanket. You can't get tangled in it. So we started working with them and fairly quickly I came up with this idea of working with them exclusively so that we would donate money to the charity to help fund more safe sleep research for all their doctors and professors. And in return, we would be their only recommended baby sleeping bag. It was a fantastic kind of idea, I think, because that's a real win-win again. Mm -hmm. So we had the only sleeping bag available in the world that had their logo on each of the packaging. And in return, we gave them money and we had on an exclusive 10-year agreement with them. So over the course of those 10 years we donated over a million pounds to safe sleep research and we know it's working because people like mother care remember them in the old days yes. <laughs> and people like john lewis they were really quite upset that they couldn't get this sticker and the accreditation the accreditation yeah. in effect but we'd got there and we'd done it you know genuinely we'd started working with them before and so yeah we donated that and in the days when you could go to number 10 and have a party officially <laughs> i went i got invited to number 10 and met the then prime minister's wife and got a tour of 10 Downing Street as a sort of thank you basically from the charity for the money that we donated. So another great thing of a win-win where you're running a business, you're making sales. Yes, you're making money, you're making a profit, but you're doing something good with it at the same time. It certainly makes it more exciting to be at work, that's for sure. Yeah, 
I'm quite jealous about going to number 10. I have <laughs> stood outside the door and had a handshake photo taken, not with the Prime Minister, but pre-9-11, I was a police officer and was visiting and I was on a course in London and it was okay in those days to have a word with the policeman, show him your warrant card and you could have a quick, assuming the Prime Minister wasn't there, you could have a quick photo. So I'm privileged to do that and have a tour of the House of Commons, but I've never actually been inside, which I'm quite jealous about. It was amazing to walk up, there's a staircase there and they have all the different Prime Ministers in the yes. photographs as you go up. And I can't remember who the last one was. I mean, it was Tony Blair that was the PM at that time. Okay. That's how long ago it was. Yeah. So you met Cherie. Cherie was a great advocate for the charity. Yeah. And yeah, being a barrister, she gave a fantastic speech. And there were parents there of children who, you know, they'd lost children through cot death and stuff. So it was an amazing event. I felt quite privileged to be there. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned portraits because I get it and I love the history. But I've got to mention, as we record this, Ukraine is currently under attack from Russia. Yeah. And the Ukrainian president who is just showing himself to be an inspirational leader and a fantastic guy apparently when he was elected before all this happened he was asked to sit for a portrait and he said no he said you don't want a portrait of a president hanging over your desk he said you want a picture of your kids and you look at it every time you make a decision that's leadership isn't it that is fantastic he's doing an incredible job and yeah i'm thinking about him every hour every day and everybody out in ukraine it's just awful it is absolutely terrible i mean let's we send them our genuine love and best wishes i wish there was more that we could do i constantly think what can i do what can i do but we just got to hope that the situation pans out in a much more positive yeah. way. Yeah, and there are little things. I mean, I've donated to Red Cross and, you know, there are various organisations that are, I think they're saying about a million refugees are mm. basically leaving Ukraine over the last week. So they all need water and food. So we can do our little bit. I also work for a charity called Mary's Meals. I was going to ask oh, you, you about to, this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, tell me about Mary's Meals because this feeds people who can't otherwise afford it. Yeah, I was going to sort of segue into Mary's Meals. So I'll tell you about Mary's Meals. Mary's Meals is a charity that feeds children overseas at schools who wouldn't normally go to school because there's no food and because they're too hungry. So this is mostly Africa. And I saw a news article, I was on the news about, I don't know, eight years ago, about a little girl called Martha Payne, you might remember. She blogged in Scotland about how awful her school food was. Yes, I and, do remember and, that. And yeah, do you remember? She yeah, just said yeah. it was terrible. And she made big change. I think they shook up the whole food system in the Scottish yeah. schools. But she raised, I think, over £200,000 yeah. for Mary's Meals. And the BBC flew her over to Malawi, which is where they started off, and they showed how the money was being spent on building these kitchens onto the side of the schools. And they served them this amazing porridge called Likini Fala. Anyway, I sat there. Tears rolled down my cheeks. I was so moved by what was going yeah. on. You know, I've got four children that never have missed a meal. And so the news finished. I rang up the charity based in Glasgow. And I said, do you have any speakers in Devon? Because I'd love to volunteer if you need a public speaker. And they went, mm. we've got one person in the whole of England well, who's volunteered currently who lives in London so yes please and I've been doing that for eight years so Mary's Meals it cost on average £15.90p to feed a child for a whole year at school £15.90 a year a year that covers one child for a whole year at school it's incredible and that's an average figure it's actually less in some countries and more in others and they feed two million children a day right. so it's an incredible charity and if you're a parent you just kind of hits you but the reason I mentioned about Mary's Meals and about giving money say to even if it's £20 to the Red Cross to help 
people in Ukraine who are fleeing, is that the founder called Magnus, he calls it little acts of love. He says all these little acts of love add up to make a difference. And I gave a speech only a couple of weeks ago at a church in Tavistock, and the figures are you know crazy. It's like 200 million children a day don't get to go to school, and it's quite overwhelming. Mm. But I said, if you can just do something, that little act of love will help. Mm. And I ended up going home with 250 pounds to give to the charity. And that was, I don't know, 20 children, mm. eight, 19 children. I'm not good at maths, that one, but <laughs> about 19 children fed for a whole year yeah. at school. It was yeah, incredible. More, yeah, I, 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 it, yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. I can't remember exactly, but it was quite a bit. And, you know, that was probably half the congregation in numbers had mm. paid for these children to be at school. I think when you bring it right down to a kind of micro level is what can you do? There's always a little something. And at the end of my Mary's Mills talks, I always quote Mother Teresa, who apparently said, if you can't feed 100 children, just feed one. Mm. And I like that because it brings everything down to a more manageable scale for us to cope with. Yeah. And if everybody fed a child, there would be no children in poverty not being able to eat at schools. It's just a small thing. And £15.90 is really not very much money for mm. most people. They spend that you know, in the first few seconds of being in a supermarket. Yeah, they do. So that's something that I do. In the last couple of months, I've worked out a way of combining my two jobs, as it were, which is being a speaker for Mary's Meals and also doing my Master Owl. So I'm as I develop more of these products, for example, the food bag, that the children bring their packed lunches to, I'm going to donate money to Mary's Meals. So as they bring in their food to eat at school, they know that by having that there, they've also helped to pay for a child probably to have three months worth of food at school just from buying that product. So I love the fact that I'm walking the talk, as it were. I'm starting off my business pretty much as a non-profit to generate money to help Mary's Meals and to also let the children know that they're benefiting other children who are less fortunate than them. So to me, there's such a lovely link between the children eating food at school here in Devon and knowing Mm. that they've helped children overseas. Well, you clearly believe in sort of joining it all up and the universe doing some good. I think I was just thinking to myself that you know, you said you met this lady in a cab. How serendipitous was that? And that has led ultimately to reduced cot death. Somebody needed you to take that cab at that time, didn't they? Definitely. And when people say, oh, you've done this, Rob, or you've done that, and I kind of like, I really don't take much credit for it because I just feel like everything that's happened to me has been guided. Mm. Let's just call it the universe for sake mm. of a better word. I just feel like, I mean, I ran a nightclub for 16 years and I hate nightclubs. So how did I end up doing that? Well, I just did. And it actually, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have been able to start the grow business. Mm. And, you know, meeting the manufacturer and all those sorts of things. And someone asked me at a school today, how did you come up with the idea to write Master Owl books? And I'm like, I didn't really. It just came into my head one day. Mm. And then all the stories, I have this thing I tell the children, it's called the story cloud. And the story cloud's got all the ideas. And all you have to do is start writing and the ideas will come in. So the whole thing feels like it's being laid out for me. And my job is just to make it happen. Mm. You know, you need boots on the ground to Mm. make things happen. And I really enjoy making things happen. I tell the kids I'm an inventor and they go, what's that? They go, do you invent things? I said, yeah. I said, but what an inventor is, is someone that has an idea and then does something with it. For me, I can't stand the thought of having an idea and not doing anything with it. Oh, my biggest regrets. I've had a couple of (laughs) brilliant ideas that I didn't take further. People don't believe me in this, but it's true. I invented Facebook. Yeah. So it's true. It's absolutely true. So I had this idea in the early days of the internet to have a web-based sort of platform where you could upload photos to share with your family and you could put little posts and things on. And I even had a name for it. It was called Go Memento. I had a meeting with a branding company, an IT company. They all thought this was a brilliant idea, but it was going to cost something like 100 
£150,000 to get off the ground. And this was back in 2005 or six or something like that. I can't remember when it was. And so it never happened. And well, we can find out what year it was because it was the year that Facebook was launched. <laughs> and I can remember looking back and thinking, oh, it could have been Mark Zuckerberg. But there we go. So the worst thing in the world is to have an idea and not action it. Uh, yeah. And there's, a, to there's it. a question of timing and good fortune and being the right place. I mean, other people were selling baby sleeping bags before we started, but nobody had kind of worked out how to market them properly. Yeah. No one else had gone to the cot death people and asked them, how should we make these safe? So we were the right people at the right place at the right time. And, you know, that's a strange mix of science and myth, isn't it, for that yeah. to happen? Well, Rob, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately we can't because we've run out of time. But I'm just going to be absolutely intrigued to see what next idea pops out of your head and you action. It could be anything. I will also be surprised because <laughs> I have no idea what will be next. Yeah, Rob, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you're not already a Chamber member and you'd like to join, membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.